I will be referring to several different passages of Scripture this morning uh, to begin our consideration of the hymn uh, Focus. I'll read again Luke 2, 8 through 14, which was part of our call to worship, and then John Myers has read it during their uh, time lighting the candle. But again, I'll read it uh, to focus our attention on an essential line in the hymn we are studying. Now, good hymns, again, remember those marked by sound theology and a fitting match of text and music have endured because they are timeless and because they are based on scriptural truth. Hark the herald angels sing in the form we have before us fits the description for sure of a good hymn. For that reason, it will be our guide in considering yet another angle on the important season that we are in, this reflection we call Advent. Hear God's word, Luke 2, 8 through 14. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angels a, angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful for this wonderful account of the Lord Jesus' birth and the announcement the announcing of that wonderful, glorious birth. Lord, glorious only in that we know what came of Jesus' life. Lord, at the same time, we recognize that we have a need to, again, consider what you did to save us and how it is for your glory. Glory to the newborn King. Lord, I pray that we would all learn at least one new thing this Advent season and that this study would, would help us in that endeavor, again, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Charles Wesley was the baby brother of the evangelist and founder of Methodism, John Wesley. Charles Wesley authored over 6,000 hymns in his life, 81 years on this earth. Charles Wesley was part of the famed Holy Club at Oxford, which included his brother John and also a man named George Whitfield. This is significant because the Wesleys and Whitfield all had a profound evangelistic effect on the newly formed United States of America. What can one say about Charles Wesley, especially me, a Presbyterian, a Calvinist? He was an Arminian. That's what I can say about Charles Wesley. Simply put, he believed that man is born not dead, but morally corrupt. He believed that man is sick and that man can reach out for the medicine of salvation. Christ died to give the opportunity to be saved and that if one would reach out and choose Christ, they would be saved. That's the essence, very simply put, of what Wesley, Charles, believed and John Wesley and what Wesleyanism still to this day teaches. Obviously, I'm a Calvinist of the Reformed tradition, which teaches that, as Ephesians says, we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins and that it takes a sovereign act of God outside of ourself to breathe life into us before we could say anything, anything that accommodates ourselves to God. 
It's only after been given life, only after we have been born again, that we can, in fact, choose Christ. So we have a stark difference. Charles Wesley and the tradition that I come from and the confession of our church. But Charles Wesley was a brother in the Lord, and he wrote phenomenal hymns. In fact, we have included many of his hymns in our hymnal, some of them that you will notice, and can it be, Christ the Lord is risen today, come thou long expected Jesus, Jesus lover of my soul, love divine all loves excelling, oh for a thousand tongues to sing, to sing. and those are just a few, why would we include them? Because they are great hymns, and in most cases, uh, that difference in our theological perspective doesn't come out vividly, where it does come out, I think a good decision has been made, and that is we Calvinize the hymn. Calvinize the hymn. That's a term I've coined, but that's what we do. Turn to hymn 455, and I'll show you what Calvinizing a hymn is. Now, keep in mind, turn to 455, my favorite hymn by Charles Wesley. A phenomenal biblical hymn with the exception of just one verse, in my humble opinion. Not just my opinion, however, uh, people have sought to be sure that we, the church, are singing the most biblical songs we can. Hymns are not scripture. They are not inspired by the Holy Spirit as scripture is, but they ought to be scriptural. In time, the test of time often shows certain ways we've expressed things that, is, that are not crisp, not clear, and not exactly biblical, so we need to make those changes as they come along. This is one such example. Verse 3 of And Can It Be? One of the truly great hymns of the Christian church reads as follows. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. Humbled himself, so great his love. And here's a line as it used to read. And bled for all Adam's fallen race. This was properly changed to what you have before you in our tradition. And bled for all his chosen race. This is a much more accurate depiction of what the Bible teaches about Christ's death. It's the only change that needs to happen. It's still Charles Wesley's hymn, and he agrees with it now, I guarantee. <laughs> but we make that change so that it is more in line with what we believe the scriptures to teach. Our brothers and sisters in other churches leave it the old way. Uh, you'll see various renditions. But the, the issue is we're worshiping. We want to be as biblical as possible. These are great hymns. There are a few things we disagree with, so we make the changes. We Calvinize them, as I say. Well, that's sort of the story between, uh, behind Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And there's a beautiful irony that I'm sure these brothers are rejoicing over in heaven between George Whitfield, who was a Calvinist, and Charles Wesley, who is an Arminian, or was an Arminian, as I say. The story behind this hymn depicts some of that interchange. Charles Wesley wrote the original words for Hark the Herald Angels Sing in 1739. Now, ironically, Wesley did not name the hymn this. The whole first verse has been changed by George Whitfield, his Calvinistic friend. Instead, Wesley wrote originally of the first verse, Hark how all the welkin rings, glory to the king of kings. Welkin is a reference to bells, bells that were used as church bells that would play out songs. Hark how all the welkin or the bells ring, glory to the king of kings. For a reason that is unexplainable, because theologically there was no trouble with what Wesley wrote, Whitfield changed it to what we have today. And Whitfield, in his evangelistic campaigns, used many of Wesley's hymns. He would Calvinize them often, and that always bothered Wesley. 
but he also popularized them. And so Whitfield's version of the words took hold, and over time, the development of the hymn kept Whitfield's first verse, which is what you have before you, and it also had four more verses. So there were five verses total that uh, Wesley originally wrote. Whitfield shortly thereafter started to, to drop off two of the verses that were written. And the church in subsequent years and many traditions dropped off two of the five verses written by Wesley for theological reasons. To the point now where even the Methodist church doesn't have all five verses of the original hymn in their hymnal, but rather just the three we have before us. Regarding the music that this was set to, there was an original hymn tune that we have lost. And for over 100 years, it was sung to various hymn tunes. William Cummings, over 100 years later, set the three verses we sing to a new hymn tune by Felix Mendelssohn. Mendelssohn was a Jewish convert to Christianity. Mendelssohn had a view that, that there was a, a sharp division between what was to be sacred music and secular music. He did not want this music that he wrote that we sing this to to be used for a sacred purpose. In fact, when he wrote it some years before Cummings used it for these words, it was for a tribute to Johann Gutenberg, the 15th century inventor who made the printing press. And he had explicit instructions that he wanted that music used for something other than sacred music. Ironically, Wesley also wanted whatever music was used for these words to be somber in tone, somber and kind of solemn. Well, Williams Cummings ignored both men, and we have the version we have before us. And frankly, I'm happy for that providential uh, blending of different talents to give us the hymn we have, because truly, in its form, these three verses, uh, they are one of the, uh, form one of the greatest hymns that we have. Hymnologists say, and I don't know how they figure this, but this is the fourth most popular hymn in all hymnody in the last hundred years. Hark the herald angels sing. I want to just take a moment to look at the two verses as an illustration of uh, the beauty of hymnody over the years. And by the way, why it's important for the years to continually apply scripture to whatever we're singing. One of the dangers of, uh, of immediately using music that has just been written is that it has not had time to undergo theological scrutiny. It may sound good, it may be easy to sing in some ways, but it needs to be carefully uh, looked upon by all members of the church across traditional lines. And so that's one reason why we have to be careful whenever we write something new. We should write something new, but recognize it should be subjected to scrutiny because we're going to be singing it in worship. And this story helps us to understand why that process is so valuable. Uh, when it was originally written by Wesley, who even though I may disagree with theologically, was very astute in the scriptures and applied uh, theology through all of his 6,000 hymns. So when he wrote these two verses, it's not that he didn't know what he was saying, it's just that the way he said it was a bit nebulous, a little bit uh, uh, unclear, and so people have wisely decided not to include these verses. Look at them, and you can see why one might uh, decide this after looking upon it for a while. The first verse that was dropped reads as follows, and it's there on your outline. Come, desire of nations, come, fix in us thy humble home. Certainly nothing immediately striking about that. But the next line, rise the woman's conquering seed broods in us the serpent's head. That's the problem line. Now display thy saving power, ruin nature, now restore. Now in mystic union, join thine to ours and ours to thine. When you first read it, certainly nothing is strikingly heretical about what's said. It's just not clear what Wesley means when he says, bruise in us the serpent's head. 
The promise is to send the seed of the woman, who is Jesus, to crush the head of the serpent. That's an action that happens in history. Outside of you and I, it happened. At Calvary, ultimately, but it was forecasted going up to that point. It's not really so much about the serpent somehow living in us and then Christ individually crushing the head of the serpent in each person. It's at least nebulous, if not erroneous. And so we've decided as a church to leave this particular verse out. Another verse that was dropped over time, they're listed for you. Adam's likeness, Lord of face, stamp thine image in its place. That's the trouble line. Continuing, second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Let us thee, thou lost, regain thee the life, the inner man. O to all thyself in part, formed in each believing heart. And the second portion has some troubling uh, notions as well. But Adam's likeness, if face, that is, do away with Adam's likeness, and stamp thy image in thy place, is just not technically sound when it comes to the scriptures. Scriptures usually, the scriptures will equate likeness and image. We are all created in the image of God. Every person, even fallen. In fact, one of the motivations for mercy ministry to people, whether you ever say the gospel message at all, is because we fellow human beings are created in the image of God and have worth and dignity as a result. As Francis Schaeffer said, that image is skewed. We're glorious ruins, but we all have the image, bear the image of God. So the hymn says to do away with Adam's likeness and stamp his image. It's just not technically accurate. Do away with Adam's nature, that would be okay, and replace it with the nature of Christ. But as it relates to, and we're talking about his, his, his holiness and so forth, but it just gets too ambiguous the way the words are listed here. It, it negates the fact that we are actually already in the image of God in need of restoration. Also, there's a reference in the last line, let us thee, though lost, regain thee the life, the inner man, owe to all thyself in part, formed in each believing heart. There's this slighting reference that some would say refers to the Methodist doctrine or the Wesleyan doctrine of entire sanctification, where someone upon salvation is made immediately completely holy. This is a, an erroneous teaching that is still pervasive there. And most uh, or people who took this verse out thought it just leaned too heavily in that direction. So we now have three verses instead of the original five. And I think the test of time has helped hone this hymn to a great, great version that we have before us. Remember, hymn writers are not prophets. They're not writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And in the end, anyone who would write a hymn would want it to be the most biblical, uh, the most biblical expression that they could possibly pen. I think we have that now in these three verses that we have been singing, really, in this form for almost 200 years. Let's consider the lyrical content and the biblical depth, then, of this wonderful hymn. It really reads like a three-point sermon. The first verse announces the birth of Christ. The second verse declares the identity of Christ. The third verse then proclaims the purpose of Christ's coming, his advent. It's wonderful. It's holistic. It fills in all the possible answers to questions one might have about this subject. First, verse 1 announces the birth of Christ. Look there with me. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful, all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies, with the angelic host proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. You probably recognize the biblical language, but you also recognize that this is an, ad an adaptation of several biblical accounts. 
an adaptation. It's an accurate adaptation. It's not word for word of the message that was proclaimed by the angels and our need to join with them in that proclamation. Luke 2 records this, as we have read already, talking about the city of David, that is Christ is born in Bethlehem. And then, of course, Luke 2, 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, it has to be noted that the hymn writer makes an inference from the text. And to Wesley's defense, this was Whitfield who did this, makes an inference from the text that is not clear. It's just not clear. In fact, I went into Nathan's office on Wednesday and I said, this is a phenomenal hymn with only one problem. The angels don't sing. Now, it's not to say they don't sing, period. However, the text explicitly says they said, they proclaimed these words. It's not a big problem to say they sing. I think angels sung, and I'll explain why in a moment. But technically speaking, it is an inference drawn because the text says that the angels said or proclaimed. And I read in the New International Version where one of the various verses on angels and their proclamation, it translates it as singing, I think in the Matthew Version. The problem is in the Greek text, it's definitely clearly lego, which is to say, to announce, to proclaim. It never means to sing. Now, it doesn't mean that angels didn't sing, however. In Revelation 5, listen to what is said, and angels are included. It's a, it's a distant reference, but it's one nonetheless that shows us that angels do sing, even if they didn't particularly sing these exact words. In Revelation 5, 6 through 12, in between the throne, the four living creatures, which we assume are some form of angelic beings with wings and eyes and so forth. And among the elders I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take up the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on earth. And then it goes on to say, Then I looked, it's John writing, and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, uh, and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is a lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Did angels sing? Well, just because texts don't say explicitly doesn't mean they didn't. In fact, it doesn't say that the disciples ever laughed either. But to laugh is to be human. To worship is to sing. In fact, we're commanded to sing consistently as human beings. Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, it says in Exodus 15. Numbers 21, and Israel sang this song, spring up, O well, sing to it. Judges 5.3, hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord, I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Psalm 149, verse 1, praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song. To worship is to sing. Whether or not the angels particularly sang these verses matters not. The essence is... There is something to sing about here. And the line is, God and sinners reconciled. That is reason to sing. This is a reference to the ministry of reconciliation that Jesus brings. 2 Corinthians 5, And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself 
and gave us, then, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. The first verse captures the biblical mood concerning the announcement of Christ's birth. The second verse, then, declares the identity of Christ. Look at that verse. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as men with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Who is Christ? His identity is revealed here. The second verse answers simply, the everlasting Lord, that's who Christ is. This is a direct reference to Isaiah's declaration that Messiah would be called everlasting father, among other designations Isaiah gives. This verse also refers, this verse 2 of the hymn, to the nature of Christ's birth, the virgin birth. Again, forecasted by Isaiah 700 years before Christ is actually born in Isaiah chapter 7. His virgin birth would be a sign of his identity as the very son of God, of Messiah, the one who is anointed, Christ. The second verse of this hymn also gives a very wonderful, though non-technical, description of Christ's nature, the God-man, as it says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. What a, <clears throat> what a beautiful picture of God-man. Now, it's not exactly technical. It's not the way the systematic theologians would all be happy with and write it exactly as such, but it certainly captures the mystery of the incarnation. Colossians 2, 9 through 10, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head and rule of all authority. Then this idea of him pleased to dwell with us. Have you ever read that line in that way? He was pleased to dwell with us. John 1 verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son, of, son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And of course, in Philippians, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Who is Jesus? This hymn, in just a few words, says it so well. Jesus is the God-man, willing to come in the form of a bondservant for you and I. He is the everlasting Lord. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Verse 1 announces the birth of Christ. Verse 2 declares the identity of Christ. Verse 3 then proclaims the purpose of Christ's coming. Look at the third verse of the hymn. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Really, after stacking uh, two different Old Testament designations for Jesus together, Prince of Peace and Son of Righteousness, we have Christ's purpose to bring light and life. Let's be clear. This is not to say that everyone gets eternal life. It simply means that Christ comes as the light of men, he comes to reveal the Father, and that to some common degree, 
everyone has benefited from the coming of Christ. Uh, he has brought light. He's brought true revelation. The church bears that revelation, whether the world accepts it or not. Christ shows in his light upon uh, the world even today. And he brings life in the ultimate general sense anyways. He has given all life who have life. Uh, he is the creator. It is through God, through Christ, that God created all things. So he's the life giver in that sense as well. He is the sovereign one, light and life to all he brings. But what we notice is that we need a second birth. This is shown clearly as he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. In this general sense, he is light and life, but specifically he brings second birth. Second birth that we all need. That's his purpose, to come to give second birth. And please notice when it says he lays his glory by, it's not meant to say that he gives up glory. It's just rather that he gives up independent access to all the attributes of God that he possesses for the time he is on earth to pay the price for our sins. This is the essence of Philippians 2 when it says he emptied himself and became nothing. It doesn't mean he gave up his godhood. It means he gave up independent access to those attributes that he had clear access to while seated next to his father and regained in its full sense as he ascended. This hymn is careful, it's thorough in this sense, and it points out to us Christ's purpose to bring glory to God by saving dead sinners, ultimately. What is the application for us today, do you suppose, these wonderful three verses that we have? I would say to you the first one, while not explicit, but is underlying it, and it should underlie any good hymn, the salvation of man is for the glory of God. The hymn properly captures the cosmic, con, uh, cosmic impact of Christ's coming. The heavenly hosts praise. Now, why do you think the angels praise uh, the Lord when this baby is born? Really, if you think about it, that's not a moment of great glory. On the onset, God, the Son, in perfect harmony with the Father, takes on flesh. Why would the heavenly hosts praise such a thing? Because it's the fulfillment of God's plan to bring glory to himself. It's not so much that the angels are cheering the fact that people will be saved, but rather that God will be glorified by what's happening. Now, that really underlies the whole tone. The first verse sets the pace for this. When you think about it, it's that God's plan had now finally come these many years later to its fruition when that baby was born. Thousands of years of prophecy came to that point. The angels sing. They proclaim glory to the newborn king. It's about his glory. Redemption is important because it's the main way that God brings glory to himself, not because I'm saved. I'm saved to bring glory to God. This, I believe, is the heart of the Reformation. Solo Dea Gloria. All the other solos come from it. Glory to God alone. Then the rest flows from it. And that makes a stark difference in how you view life. Is it for God's glory or is it somehow for my good? In those two different ways of looking at it, have profound ramifications on the way we look at the world, let alone the scriptures themselves. The hymn does well to remind us the salvation of man is for the glory of God. Also, only God could save us from our sins. This emphasis, especially in the second verse, about the incarnation, about God veiling himself in flesh, so to speak, uh, really depicts for us there is really only one way we could be saved. Due to the complete corruption of the human race, 
it demanded that the creator himself, the lawgiver, must redeem the lawbreakers. It's not like he could just create another person who was without sin. The only way to do that would be to start a new race. Uh, the only answer was for himself to put himself in our place and pay that price. In fact, that's what's so beautiful about the timing of this. If you have read uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know that Aslan, the Christ figure, takes the place of Edmund, the traitor. And Aslan's the only one that could do it. Now, the witch doesn't know this. She thinks she's caught Aslan. Because as soon as she kills Aslan in Edmund's place, she's going to go kill Edmund too. She thought she won that. In a similar way, the devil, who knows what the devil really knew about what was going on, but there had to be a moment of a sense of victory on his part when crushing or bruising the heel of the seed of the woman on the cross. But the fact is, there's a deeper magic, as it says, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that only Aslan knew as the creator, that there was a way to redeem the traitor. It couldn't be another fellow traitor. It would have to be God himself. So that's the significance of Aslan giving his life up for Edmund, the only one who could. God is the only one who could redeem us, not someone else. And he takes it on. He lays his glory by, and he is pleased with, man, with, uh, with man, men to dwell. He will do it. He will pay the price to save us from our sins. The only one that could do it. And he lays his glory by for that purpose. I would say to you thirdly, Christ gives us the ultimate example of humility in this. Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Just that opposition of everlasting Lord with coming through the virgin, the virgin's womb. Everlasting Lord and virgin's womb. Have you ever caught the difference between those two pictures? It's profound. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hailed incarnate deity, pleased as men with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. This everlasting Lord comes and washes the disciples' feet and never complains in his whole life. Not once about his lot in life. How many of us complain about our job or about this menial task we have to do? I've got to take out the garbage. I'm sure, kids, none of you complain when your parents want you to clean your room or take out the garbage. No one here ever complains. They just do it, right? Well, Jesus came and did something far more humiliating than any of us can imagine. Never complained, was pleased to do it, and actually gave an example by washing the feet of his disciples. That's the everlasting Lord that we're talking about. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Finally, I would say that this hymn teaches us that Christ came to bring real peace. <clears throat> I don't mean just personal peace and global, but rather global peace as well. Now, I'll be honest with you, every time I sing that and I look at our world, I turn on our TV, I always kind of just sing it and say, yeah, yeah, that's right, and then go on, but don't believe it ever could happen. That really, what, these people are always fighting is what I think when I look at different parts of the world. You know, we don't ever fight, but those people are always fighting. Well, the fact is, the ultimate, ultimate ends is to bring peace among people as well. That will never happen unless there's peace with God first. There's only one way to have peace with God, and that's Jesus Christ. There will always be jihad or uh, gang warfare or violence that are committed against one another, civil war, you name the conflict, the violence, whatever it is, so long as there's a lack of peace with God. And no matter how religious the overtones are, one who says they're fighting or having a war for God is not of God. They're not really rightly related with God, they're actually at war with God. The manifestation is war with man, but they're really at war with God. That's the reason why we do anything nasty to each other. Because we're at war with God. 
It's a reflection the way we treat others with how we view our relationship with God. If we don't see ourselves as adopted sons and daughters, we treat everyone else like a slave also. As we rightly understand our relationship with God, then there's peace that it happens among us. Our liturgy tries to explain this. The beginning of our liturgy, we walk through confessing our sins. We hear the gospel in a nutshell. We get assurance of faith. Then we pass peace with each other. We're right with God. It's a reminder. Now we can be right with one another. Don't think that's too simplistic because that's the actual answer to the world's problems. Is right relationship with God through Christ. Only the spread of Christianity will ever bring global peace. And I happen to think it can happen in, in time and space. Maybe not exactly in our life, but not just when Jesus comes back, but as the church is faithful, that peace would grow. And I pray to God almost daily that he would let me live long enough to see what I think is going to happen in this world when the gospel busts forth in all its fervor in Asia. You say, Asia, what does that have to do with us? I think we're an afterthought. I think right now the church is welling up in a place like China like you have no idea. I think in India, China, uh, the Koreas, right now, even in North Korea, I think the church, like it always does under persecution, bubbles up, and it's the real church. It's not the worldly church that cares more about the cars we drive and the buildings we have. It's not the American church. It's the real church, and it's bubbling up, and you watch. It's going to have a profound effect. Some people tell us 30 million people in China profess Christ. I guarantee you to profess Christ in China means a whole lot more than it does here. That's a low estimate. I happen to believe others that I know personally that are there that think it's much more like 100 million, a third of the size of our country that may be professing Christ. That will show itself. And I think you'll see global peace on a level that we are not experiencing now as the church busts forth in those places where God is incubating it. And you know what? We need to do what we can to promote the growth of the church in those places for that reason. I have a high view of what Christ is going to do in time and space. I can't wait till he comes back in glory. Don't get me wrong. But I think that he meant what he said when he said, I will be with you and give you authority even to the end of the earth. And he didn't say that when I come back, now. So as the church is faithful, we can already see the Prince of Peace doing his work. And so when we sing that verse, we don't just do like I said, pass over it like that could never happen. But no, it can happen. It can happen that peace could in fact come to this earth because peace with God is had through Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, to us, the message of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What a wonderful hymn, and in all its various applications, as you really study its depth, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Let's pray. Lord, we love these hymns of victory, which are so biblical in their explanation of salvation of Jesus coming as man, of your glory, of what you will bring. Lord, help us as we sing these verses, as we sing these words, that we be renewed and refreshed in our spirit what you are doing. And Lord, that in our own lives we would see this, this life of Christ lived out. Lord, we long for people to be at peace with you, and we think of the idea of why we do missions or why we share the message of the gospel, it's so that everyone would glorify God aright. 
Lord, I pray that we'd be a people about that, your glory. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn.